Revelation 11:15 says the seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign for how long forever and ever and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God we've seen them several times in the book now fell on their faces and worship God saying, we give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who was, because thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to, the bond, uh, their reward to thy bondservants, uh, the prophets and the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. You could see in verse 18, the Bema seat uh, judgment, which is really for rewards that's mentioned there for the people of God, not for judgment. Sin is dealt with for believers, but for rewards. And the temple of God, verse 19, which is in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. If you look at those signs there, look at flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, an earthquake, hailstorm, all signs of judgment there. And uh, that is Revelation 11, which is actually, uh, one writer says, chiastically right in the middle of the book of Revelation. There's 22 chapters in Revelation. And you could say the second coming of Christ is depicted right in the middle so that everything surrounds it. Now, some of you are saying, but that's strange to me, Pastor Michael. How does that work in the order of Revelation? Well, Revelation is not necessarily all consecutive. Sometimes it looks back. Sometimes there are interludes in the book of Revelation to explain something, to give us a little bit more uh, you know, backstory, if you will. And that's what we're gonna get in Revelation 12, 13, and 14. We have come to what we would call an interlude in the book of Revelation. That means there's going to be a kind of a pause from the flow that's been happening to explain something else. And scholars would say that Revelation 12, 13, and 14 form a trilogy of thought to explain what's behind me, the conflict of the ages. What has happened to this planet? What has happened to mankind? Who is Satan? Where did he come from? What is the big story of the nation of Israel and the church being grafted into the nation? What can explain the history of Israel, for example, and the history of the church? How do we make sense of what we see today, conflict in mankind, you know, mass shootings, persecution, tension, you know, threats of nuclear war, you name it, it's before us right now. How do we explain What's been going on in the world and in the world that we don't often talk about, the unseen world, the place where the Bible describes a cosmic conflict with uh, forces of wickedness in heavenly places. It calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Is there another dimension that we don't pay much attention to, and I say we being people in general, to explain maybe some of the things that seem inexplicable to the talking heads, to, to people who are trying to figure out why people do what they do. Is there a, 
spiritual battle going on. The Bible says, indeed, there is a spiritual battle. And in fact, you're involved in it. I don't know if you knew you were in a fight, but you are. The Bible explains that fight in many places, especially in Ephesians chapter 6, when it says that you've been given armor. Armor is for one thing. Think about it. Armor is for protection. You have the armor of God because you need protection. Who wants to protect you? It's your father. He loves you. That's why he gave you armor. And he knows you're in a battle and he knows who the enemy is. And he's known him for a long time. He knows more about this unseen world than we do. So we would do well to put on the provisions that he gives to us. Would you agree? It's kind of like when you tell your kids, look, be careful. Don't do this. Be careful. Watch. I know. I know. I know. No, you don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. Because we, if you've lived a little bit longer, perhaps several decades longer than the one you're speaking to, you have a little bit more experience with the world and with people and those who you can trust and those who you might not trust. The people that you say, I will trust you as far as I can throw you and that kind of thing. So Revelation 12 opens with a great sign. It explains the conflict of the ages. And here's what it says. A great sign appeared in heaven, Revelation 12, 1. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now a great sign opens up chapter 12, verse 1. It appears in heaven and the sign is a woman. Now the word sign is semion in Greek and it means a token or a wonder In fact, this word is used of Jesus' signs, for example, in the Gospel of John. The signs were pointing to something in the Gospel of John. In fact, eight signs are recorded in John's Gospel. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The signs were authentic miracles, but they pointed to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah And that by believing in him, you'll have life, that is eternal life, in his name. This sign that appears in heaven is a woman, but it's it's a symbolic woman. It is not a literal woman. It's a sign that appears in heaven. It is a sign of a woman, but not a literal woman. Notice some things about her. She's clothed with the sun. I know a lot of you ladies shine, but, you know. Anyway, this lady's clothed with the sun. She's got the moon under her feet, and on her head, she has a crown of how many? 12 stars. Now, if I asked you, just tell me, the number 12, what does it make you think of? The 12 what? Tribes of Israel. You might say the 12 apostles, right? Uh, But here, she has these 12 stars on her head. Now, who is this woman? What are we to make of this sign? The Roman Catholic Church believes that the woman of Revelation 12 is the Virgin Mary. Uh, Some of you recall that on September the 23rd, I believe it was, there were people who were spreading rumors that this this scene of Revelation 12 was explaining some sort of alignment of planets and it signaled the end of the world. Let me just say to you, and I've said this before and I'll say it again. These people are batting a big zero, zero, zero. Every time they predict a date, the one thing that you can pretty much take to the bank is they're going to be wrong. Because no man knows what? 
the day or the hour. Now, I will say to you, I believe Jesus indicated that we will have an idea of the season of his second coming. In fact, I've argued that as we've gone through the book of Revelation. I believe we're going to have horse and rider. We're going to have seals that will indicate that we are near the end. That's why my view is, I've kind of laid out to you that I think there will be things that you can look for. However, we haven't even seen those things yet. So anybody who starts predicting a date and putting, you know, an exact day on it, I just say, you know, just be extremely careful because these guys have a dismal track record, okay? And I slept like a baby that night. I had a friend uh, some years ago. This was, this was several years ago. Uh, there was another, another one of these guys, and he predicted the end of the world in October, and you guys, some of you guys remember that. It was a guy that owned a radio station or something. And he had done this before. And so a friend of mine uh, texted me the day after this was all going to happen, you know, by midnight. And he said, are you still here? <laughs> and I did not respond to his text. <laughs> so I just want you to... Just assimilate that for a second. We have a deep and profound friendship. <laughs> I did finally tell him I was, but I milked it for a couple of hours anyway. Mary Baker Eddy, by the way, who was the founder of Christian Science, claimed that she was the woman of Revelation 12. Um, that's pretty bold statement when you pretty much write yourself into the Bible. You guys have heard about Christian scientists. Uh, they believe that everything is an illusion. Uh, they don't believe anything's really real. Sickness, you name it, is not real. So um, if you get sick, they say that's an illusion. Um, evil is an illusion. Everything is an illusion. You heard about the Christian scientist who ends up in hell. He's in a corner of hell with his hands over his head, bobbing, saying, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. If you want to test the belief system of a Christian scientist, just ask them to step in front of a Mack truck and see if the truck is real. I don't recommend that. That's a joke. But your worldview, um, you know, you say everything's an illusion, but the reality is that's just flat out nonsense. There are all these isms and belief systems and, and, you know, with all due respect to the Roman Catholic Church, and I think they have a little bit going for them because in this text, it does say the woman is about to give birth to a male child who will rule the nations. That's the Messiah. So there's at least some decent ground that this could be a reference to Mary. By the way, there are depictions of Mary in Roman Catholicism that depict her this way with the sun, and she's standing upon the moon, and so forth. And that's where this comes from. But this is an elevation of Mary that is unbiblical. And I think as Protestants, we, all, we have to be careful to say, look, we have great honor and respect for Mary, right? She was a chosen woman of God, but she is not a co-redeemer of mankind. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus. Remember at that um, wedding in Cana of Galilee, uh, she said, whatever he tells you, listen to him, <laughs> right? 
So Mary had a very special place to be the mother of the Messiah, but she is not a co-redemptrix. She is not, you know, she does not give us access to God. We get access to the Father through the Son. End of story. So um, you say, well, then who is the woman, Pastor Michael? Well, the woman clothed of the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. We're, we're getting an idea of who she is by looking at the 12 stars. But we have, I think, the, the interpretation on safe ground when we hear these words. And I just want to encourage you, just write this down. Most of you are familiar with this. This is Genesis 37, 9 through 11. Genesis 37, 9 through 11. Joseph has a dream. He says, I dreamed another dream. He shared it over a bowl of uh, Fruit Loops. He said, behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Genesis 37, 9. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother? Now, uh, Jacob realizes that he and his wife are represented here. He had more than one wife, but that's another discussion. Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Father, Jacob, interprets the dream this way. It represents him, his wife, and his sons. Joseph would be the 12th star. 12 represents the number of tribes of Israel. So the woman, the sign of the woman, is the nation of Israel. Just taking scripture with scripture, she is the woman. She is the one, by way of sign, who gives birth to the male child, who is to rule the nations. Now, I will tell you, I, I've treated this in other uh, Bible studies, but I'll just say this to you. Because Israel was the nation through which the Messiah would come, this explains a lot of the history of that nation. Why did the Pharaoh persecute them in Egypt? Why did the Assyrians persecute them and demolish the northern tribes? Why did Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonian armies come in there and take them into a 70-year captivity? Why did Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived uh, and did what he did between about 171 and 164 BC, go in there, uh, slay a pig on the altar, desecrate the temple. In fact, he committed what is called the abomination of desolation, which is a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist will do in the future. And uh, he killed somewhere around 80,000 Jews, stopped them from circumcising their children, stopped them from reading the Torah. In fact, he started burning the Torah scrolls. He is a type of of the coming Antichrist, a foreshadowing, if you will. Why did they go through that? Why did they have the Roman legions coming, come in there in 70 AD and, and destroy uh, Jerusalem to the ground? Why has this happened? Why did Nazi Germany happen in the Holocaust? I think the only way that you can explain these things in world history and the hatred that has come towards the Jewish people, let me qualify this by saying, we all understand that Jewish people are not perfect, right? We all understand that the nation of Israel today 
though they came back to the land in 1948 and recaptured Jerusalem in 1967, are not a perfect people. In fact, they are largely either atheists or agnostic. They believe in what you might categorize as Zionism. Zionism is a, is a passion for country, but not necessarily a belief in God. Most Jewish people, especially in the nation today, are not believers in God. So if you have a question about why does the Christian church talk about Israel, support Israel, and that kind of thing, here's the reason. Israel is God's chosen people. God is going to work again in the ethnic nation of Israel. That's a position that I hold. I believe that it's undeniable biblically. But it doesn't mean that Israel is perfect or that everything they, they do is right. But we are told in Psalm 122, verse 6, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. We're told as those who have been grafted into that promise, if you will, into the trunk of the tree, which is Israel, not to be puffed up about our position as Gentiles, that is non-Jews. We have to be careful. God did choose this nation and made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. So this woman is the nation of Israel, verse 2. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this is a very picturesque, powerful uh, image here of labor. When a woman is in labor, it's a, it's a radical time, right? I mean, you hear of ladies going through, you know, 20 hours of labor. It's, these are times when I thank the Lord I'm a guy. I mean, I just have to be honest. <laughs> we couldn't handle it. That's right. But we, we try to help with the breathing, right? <laughs> I remember when Shane was born, I was pacing the hallways. And it was pretty intense. <laughs> and I wasn't the one in labor. But anyway, never mind. Before I get in any more trouble, let's move on. <laughs> But she's in labor. So when a woman's in labor, just think about it. She's not thinking about a lot of other things other than I want to have this baby and I want to have this baby now and in between threatening her husband. <laughs> right? That's pretty much it. It's she's in pain to give birth. And this image is used all over the Bible in fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, the things that he described in those early verses are only the beginning of labor pains. Israel's described as a woman in labor, right? It's this very distressful time, but the end is, of course, the birthing process. And so Israel has been a nation in labor, in pain. Think about all that they have been through. Think about how many Jews died in the Holocaust. Have you been to a Holocaust museum? How many of you? Just raise up your hand. I tell you what, I went to the Holocaust Museum in Israel. I walked out of there in stunned silence for what mankind can do to mankind. It just, it's just, there's no words. But I do think that we, even though we do see evil against other people groups, I think we can understand um, this these, this language. She cried out. That seems to be the story of Israel. Remember when Jesus was born and Herod tried to ascertain 
things about him and you know, lied to the wise men and then killed the babies there in um, Bethlehem, two years, eight, of eight, two years old and under. And Rachel is pictured as weeping for her children and she can find no comfort. This is, this is the story of Israel. And why? Because a, the hope of the nations was going to come. And you, you might ask, well, well, who is it that is trying to destroy hope? Who wouldn't want a deliverer to come to mankind, to the nation of Israel and to all of mankind? Well, another sign appears in heaven, verse 3. And behold, a great red dragon. Now you have a woman in labor. She's the first sign. The second sign here. Another sign in heaven. And imagine being John and seeing this stuff. Is a great, a large red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Now a red dragon is scary enough. But how about a seven-headed red dragon? You know, um, I showed you a few weeks back uh, one of the, uh, the characters or the animals and their fantasy animals from the Lord of the Rings. You remember those things? What were they called again? The, oh, you guys, somebody knows the name of them. Anyway, scary. They squeal. Remember that? <laughs> And people are covering their ears and they're these terrible, scary looking creatures and they have wings. Woof, woof. And the wings just, you know, they're really long and they're, they're just terrible looking creatures. Imagine this, this great red dragon. He has seven heads. Now imagine a seven-headed dragon. And imagine the seven-headed dragon is there in opposition to a woman in labor. You have a woman in labor against a seven-headed dragon who's huge and terrible looking. I read a writer this week, who would you put your money on in that battle? Me, the pregnant woman, of course, right? But it doesn't seem like a fair fight, does it? This, this terrible, nasty dragon and a woman in labor about to give birth to a child. Really, she's in a very vulnerable position when you think about the imagery. And this seven-headed dragon has ten horns. We're, we're going to see explanations of this later in the book. On his head were seven diadems, seven crowns. A diadem is like a royal crown. In Revelation 13, 2, uh, we see uh, the dragon giving power to the beast, and we'll see more about this later. Uh, James Hamilton says in his commentary, the picture gets even more terrifying for this grotesque dragon is pictured as standing before the woman in labor, ready to destroy or to eat or consume her child. Put the two images together and you have a powerful drama. A pregnant woman in the process of giving birth and she is being threatened by a massive dragon who wants to eat her baby the moment he is born. She cannot run. She cannot hide. What hope does she have? The child about to be born is the world's last hope. Incarnate love, goodness, purity, and hope is about to arrive in the face of incarnate evil. But we all know this baby isn't hopeless or helpless, is he? Because this baby is like no other baby. His name is Emmanuel. His name, God with us. And he will rule the nations. But this dragon, this terrible beast with seven heads, perhaps at least in part explaining that he is the picture of evil. 
uh, we get a little bit more about him. His tail, the dragon's tail, swept a third of the stars of heaven. Remember, all of this has been happening in a heavenly scene. And he threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Can you think of anything more frightening? Can you, can you put this into a, in a, in a cinema drama right now? Imagining a woman maybe in a hospital bed in the final you know, draws of labor and a huge, ugly dragon just standing there to kill her child. It's, it's quite a scene. And, and if you're John, you're looking at this. And remember, this is all in symbolic, picturesque language. This, this book is written this way to give you the feel of the drama. These are signs, right? They're images, but they paint pictures like, like a movie or a storybook paints these pictures so you can understand the drama of the moment. This is what our author is seeing, the Apostle John. He is seeing this terrible scene uh, unfold before him. In the sweeping of the third of the stars, the uh, traditional view I think that most of us are familiar with is that Satan took a third of the angels in chapter one, stars or angels, and brought them in some sort of angelic rebellion. Just so you guys know, to my knowledge, this is the only place in all of Scripture where a third of the stars is mentioned in the sense that a third of the angels would have been swept in some sort of angelic rebellion. Was there an angelic rebellion? Yes. Does the devil have his angels? Yes. What are they today? Demonic powers. We know other books of the Bible says angels sinned and left their proper abode. We know there's places in the scripture that talk about the angel over the bottomless pit or the angel of the abyss. We know that the Bible paints spiritual warfare in Daniel 10, that Daniel was praying and uh, an angel was trying to give the answer, but he was being opposed. And we have demonic powers pictured in uh, Ephesians 6 of spiritual warfare and all of this. So we do know that this is certainly the case. We just can't be emphatic that it was a third of them. This is the only place that we have a third. It could be correct. It could be that this means a third of the angelic, uh, the angels uh, left in some sort of rebellion with Satan. Uh, how many angels are there? Probably billions upon billions. So if that's the case, and if a third is correct, then there's a lot of demonic powers out there. But here's just something for your consideration. And this is in the book of Daniel, chapter 8. So let's go over there for a second. So find the Psalms and the Proverbs. Go a little bit to your right. You're going to find Daniel, chapter 8. Let me just show you something that happens. I was describing to you um, as, uh, how the Bible talks about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's known as the man of intrigue in Daniel, chapter 8. Now, we know that Daniel is kind of the Old Testament revelation and here's what it says about this man. And just, this is just something to consider as you study the Bible. It says, Daniel 8, 9, out of one of them came forth a, uh, came forth a rather small horn, Daniel 8, 9, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land would be Israel there. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down. It 
even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Keep reading for a second. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and, it, and perform its will and prosper. There are some that see Daniel 8 in these verses I've just given you, 9 through 12, as an explanation of the stars being swept down. Because if you think about it, back to Revelation 12, Daniel 8 is talking about Israel and how Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes by the way, his name, Epiphanes, means God manifest. That's who he thought he was. Talk about a, a bit of a pride issue, right? He thought he was God manifest, right? And he began burning Torah scrolls and he was killing Jews who would not obey him and, and basically convert to the Greek ways. And uh, what he did in sweeping the stars here or the host is he killed Jewish people. And so there are some that see this sweeping of the stars, not necessarily an angelic rebellion, although that did happen, but uh, perhaps uh, more to Israel as a nation. I'll let you just chew on that one because it may be new uh, to most of you. And she, this woman back in Revelation 12, says now that you have the dragon, you have the woman. We have explanations of uh, who they are. She, the woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule. The word rule could be shepherd. How many? All the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, the child, the male child, who is to rule all the nations is who? Is Jesus. You could just safely write in your Bible there, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 says that I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm chapter two. So we know that that's Jesus. That gives us more indication that the woman is Israel. Jesus comes from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He comes, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's from the nation of Israel. Jesus was Jewish, by the way. And he is the savior of the world. This son that she's about to birth, the dragon wants to kill him. Why? Why is the dragon bent on killing him? Because the dragon does not want him to emerge to a throne because Romans 16.20 says that the Lord Jesus Christ will soon crush the head of the snake. Aren't you glad? We have a savior who he dealt with demonic powers and principalities at the cross, triumphing over them through the cross. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus will rule. Satan won't rule. He wanted to have his throne ascend above the stars. He wanted to be like the most high in Isaiah 14. And God says, oh, no, you won't. You'll be thrown down. That's probably the reason for the angelic rebellion. Now, one other place I want to show you in the Old Testament is the book of Micah. Micah. Okay, so you found Daniel, right? Didn't you? <laughs> okay, keep going to the right. And the book of Micah is more to the right. 
How was that for help? <laughs> like, what? Just toss up. If you find Jonah, you're really close. Here's the book of Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, 5, 2, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. By the way, Micah 5, 2 is written 700 years before Jesus was born and predicted his birthplace. That's part of just a small snippet of the majesty of the Bible. 700 years before the Messiah is born, his birthplace is prophesied. He will be born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. By the way, David was from that area as well. He's from the days of eternity. He's eternal. He's God. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she, Micah 5.3, who is in labor, has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to what? To the ends of the earth. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Go back to Revelation 12. Surely ask me and I will give you the nations. Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. This is ahead of us. This is the future. A new Jerusalem. It's going to be a grand city. That's why Satan doesn't want him to reign. Satan didn't want him to go to the cross, although I think Satan was confused about that. And now Satan's been taking out his his anger against the Jewish people, and I'm sure you've noticed the church of Jesus Christ. Persecution. The seed of the church has been the blood of the church. The, the church has been persecuted to no end by this red dragon, if you will. He's inspired hate against the church. And for what? What threat are you to the world have you noticed how even in American politics, Christians have been painted in the last couple of decades? Like we're some sort of serious threat to society. Like what do we do? We ask people not to abort their babies and to be good to one another. And we're usually the first ones there when disaster happens or there's AIDS victims or hospitals need to be built or shelters need to go up or houses need to be built for the poor. We're usually the ones where in emergencies, we open the doors to people, we pay light bills, we give people food, we help, we visit the sick in hospitals, we help people grieve through the loss of a loved one, we marry, we bury, and do everything in between. Yet for some reason, the church gets a bad rap. Oh, oh I know why it is. Because we tell people there's a hope of getting to heaven through Jesus Christ. And what people don't like is when we say, and if you don't receive him, you're in trouble. 
They don't like that. That's when they begin to snarl at me in some services that I do. I'm not talking about tonight. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody snarl at me. But I've had some occasions where it was very obvious, and I'm not talking about church services, where the people who were hearing what I had to say were not particularly happy about the message. And for what? Because I intimated, I said, you know, you need to take God's way because if you don't take God's way, that's the only way. Oh, how dare you? How narrow and bigoted is that? Well, at least God made a way. I mean, it was the death of his son, right? It was his blood on the cross. How much more does he have to do for you? Do you still have to do it your way? Or won't you come God's way? How much love does he have to demonstrate for you? Anyway, the child being caught up to God's throne is the Greek word harpazo. It's the word for rapture. It means to seize or rescue. Look at verse five. She gave birth to a son, a male child, and this dragon wanted to kill him. He is the ruler, right? But he was caught up, verse five, end of the verse, harpazo, the word for rapture. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He was caught up. Jesus was raptured. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Well, technically not raptured. He ascended into heaven, right? Acts chapter one, the disciples are with him and he begins to go up, right? And they're staring up there. <laughs> whoa. I don't know if they said dude back in those days, but whoa, dude. Why do you stand there staring up into heaven? This Jesus whom you saw go up will come down in like fashion. He's coming again. You can write down Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. Look for my coming at first light on the fifth day. Gandalf, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Do you remember that scene? They're getting beat up and battered in that castle. Remember, it looks like all hope has lost those terrible looking orcs. Roof, roof. It's one of my favorite sound effects. Anyway, it's terrible. It seems like all hope is lost. And remember that one king? I'm trying to remember his name, but you have... You have uh, I can't think of names tonight. Anyway, the other king, and he says, ride out with me. And they ride out to try to take on these ugly, terrible-looking creatures. They're outnumbered. They're getting pummeled. And they look up on the hill, and there's Gandalf on his white horse. First light has come on the fifth day. And these terrible creatures turn around, and all of a sudden, they don't look so mean anymore. And the light hits them, and they kind of almost melt in the light. And the horses run them over. In this great battle scene of Lord of the Rings. Just when it looked like all hope was lost. Is that how you feel tonight? You know, think about it. A woman in labor about to give birth to a male child against a seven-headed dragon. Ready just to destroy that kid. Who's going to win? If you pause the movie at that point, what would you think? But you know what? Things aren't always as they appear. Because in the upside down kingdom of God, the people that you would least suspect end up being more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you believe it? You know, sometimes we look around and we think, man, all hope is lost in my life. All hope is lost in my nation. All hope is lost over here. But you know what? Hope is not lost because Jesus Christ is our hope. 
Amen? Amen. And he will rule with a rod of iron. That dragon is going to be done. All right. Verse 6. We're going to have to move a little quicker because I do want to try to get through this chapter. The woman fled. Now, who's the woman? Israel. The male child is taken up. So the woman now flees in the light of the dragon's hatred. She goes into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. You all know what that is, right? It's three and a half years. We did talk about a historical event where people heeding Jesus' words fled to an area called Pella. The early church, the early Jewish church did that. We do believe that that foreshadows another scene when this is going to happen again and people who are in this area are going to flee. There are some people who believe they will flee to the area of Petra. That's up for debate. But we think this is going to happen again. And I've explained a lot of that in previous messages. And there was war in heaven, verse 7. Michael, one of my favorite guys in all the Bible, just mark that. His name is amazing. My, <laughs> Michael, and he, would you check this out? Michael has angels. Uh, was it Ray? Did you show me that picture where your guardian angel had their head down and it's basically that you were wearing them out? Is that, was that a direct application to you? <laughs> His guardian angel just had his head down. Anyway, we won't go there, but Michael and his angels was waging war with the dragon and the dragon and who? His angels wage war. Now we're going to find out that the dragon, Satan, Satan has angels. Michael has angels. Michael is an archangel with a team apparently under him and the dragon has his angels and there's a war in heaven. Remember, everything's been going on in heaven as John sees this. And they were not strong enough. That is the the dragon and his angels at the end of verse 7. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. They got the boot. The boot of disfellowship. (laughs) And the great dragon was thrown down. Here you get who he is. He's the serpent of old. By the way, Genesis 3, when the serpent is there tempting Eve, the only place that I know of that tells us who the serpent is is here. And I think 2 Corinthians eleven three is pretty specific on that as well, uh, about the deception of Satan there. But the serpent of old, the serpent that came into the garden that possessed the serpent, if you will, is Satan. He's called the serpent of old. Serpent speaks of cunning. He's the devil. Diabolos is the Greek word. It means a slanderer, accuser, accusing falsely. His name is also Satan. Satanus speaks of an adversary. Four names for Satan here. Who deceives the whole world. He's a deceiver. And he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Does Satan have access to heaven today? There's a little debate. Some people say yes. Others say no. Kind of depends on your end times viewpoint. In the book of Job, Satan appeared before God in heaven. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, oh, the only reason, paraphrasing, he does what he does 
is because you give him everything and you bless him. Take some stuff away and he'll curse you to your face. There's the accuser. And so Satan is given some wiggle room to mess with Job, right? And uh, we know that that, how that story unfolds. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He deceives the whole world and he accuses. Here he is thrown down. He's pictured in Zechariah 3.1 as standing at his right hand to accuse him. Speaking of Joshua, the high priest. Jesus talks about the ruler of this world being cast out in John 12.31. Romans 8 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the sway of the evil one. In verse 10 of chapter 12 of Revelation, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, the church, has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God, how often? Day and night. Now, he made accusations against Job. He made accusations against Joshua. And apparently, he accuses the brethren. There are some people, some scholars, good scholars, who believe he no longer has access to accuse. He's been kicked out. You might say, well, at what point was he kicked out? Some believe when Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, Satan's accusing career is over. No accusation can be leveled against the church because we're in the righteousness of Christ. And so we have the imputed righteousness. So what a silly thing it would be for Satan to continue to try to accuse people who are as righteous as Christ, positionally speaking. Everybody with me? There are others who hold that he still has access And that access will not be cut off until the middle of the great tribulation. And that he's still doing it, but he does it to no end. Because every time he accuses us, we just have Jesus answer the door, right? And we are in Christ. And there is nothing that will ever separate us from his love. No accusation will stick. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Nada. Zero. Romans 8 starts off with no condemnation. Romans 8.39 ends with no separation. Nothing will ever separate you from his love. And in between, God works all things together for good. Read Romans 8 to know who you are in Christ. No condemnation, no separation. And God's working everything out for the good of those who what? Who love him. Praise God. That's who you are in Christ. Why, Why do we listen to the voice of the enemy sometimes? Beat ourselves up unnecessarily. We're still in that battle. And they, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Verse 11. How do you overcome the evil one? Through the blood of the lamb. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. Who is he who overcomes? 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He who believes. We overcome by faith in Jesus Christ. We're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We have been set free, washed in the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But it has been done. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Verse 12. 
Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you. And he has what? He has great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now, those who hold that Satan was kicked out after the cross and resurrection think the short time encompasses the last couple thousand years. Those who hold that this is the middle of the great tribulation believe the short time is just a matter of months or perhaps a couple of years. So you can see that language there. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? Israel, who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness. The wilderness is a picture of Israel wandering after the Exodus to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. What's that? Three and a half years. You can write down chapter 12, verse six. From the presence of the serpent. Exodus 19, four, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Into the wilderness is repeated in Mark chapter one several times. And God protects her there. He takes care of his people in the wilderness. Um, so that could be Israel, the remnant of Israel, heading off as they see the Antichrist doing what he's going to do. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. Remember, this is all symbolism. Your mouth usually is the place from which words come. He's a liar and a deceiver. Out of his mouth, I think, is the key to the interpretation. After the woman, he poured out water, probably rivers of lies, deception, you name it. Out of his mouth, after the woman, after Israel, so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. Maybe lies. The devil is a liar, a murderer from the beginning. And the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon wanted to destroy her and the earth opened up its mouth and saved the woman, Israel. Do you remember when Korah was rebelling against Moses? And Korah was basically, who are you to lead us? You're not all that, Moses. And Moses says, you know what? If that's true, I'm paraphrasing. I'll tell you what. If I'm really not the true leader and prophet of this nation, then you, you guys will all die in the way people normally die. You'll live your life and you'll die a normal death. But if I am the true leader and prophet of this nation, may the ground open up and swallow you and take you down to Sheol eh, on the count of three. I added that, by the way. That's not in the Bible. But it sounds pretty good. It's kind of like what you tell your kid. One. I'm serious now. One and a half. One and three quarters. And if you read the account in the book of Numbers of Korah's rebellion, write down Numbers 16, 28 through 34. The ground opened up and swallowed them and they all went down to Sheol in a heap, kind of like this. And the other people who were around said, quick, run to Moses so that the ground doesn't swallow us up too. Yep. That was during the Exodus. I think if you take the book of Revelation and answer interpretive questions by taking scripture with scripture, you kind of see the picture. There's people rebelling, trying to 
destroy Israel and its leadership or the church, if you will. And God is helping her as he did in times past. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, 17, final verse, and went to make war with the rest of who? Her offspring. The woman's Israel. Who's the rest of her offspring? Uh, when you go and find a mirror tonight, you'll see who they are. You are. You have been grafted in to the promises. We are the rest of the offspring. We are all sons of God, sons of Abraham by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's the believer, justified by faith, and we've been grafted in. And he goes off to make war with the rest of her offspring. I think that's the church. Who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful that we have a testimony, all of us, to share of the good news of one who was born a male child but did not stay that way. You know, we're quickly coming to Christmas. It's incredible <laughs> how, how soon the year flies by. And Christmas decorations will be going up probably in a matter of weeks. And once again, we will celebrate a male child, but no ordinary child, one who would rule the nations. The wise men, they came, and wise men and women still lay gifts at his feet. And he grew to be that man. And at about the age of 30, he made a public initiation of his ministry in the Jordan River. And he's become the hope of all the world. Thank you that that dragon was not able to destroy him. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. When we just pause to think of the terrible destruction that has been caused in this conflict, the terrible war and the casualties of that war, the multitudes of hopeless people in darkness, in the occult, using drugs, wasting their lives, Oh, but Lord, some of us, it wasn't that long that we were in that situation. And you opened our eyes and you showed us hope. The face of hope is the face of Christ. That dragon will not win. He will be destroyed. Thank you that he was dealt the death blow at the cross. Thank you that he was defanged in the resurrection. Thank you that he does not have the power, the ultimate power you do. And thank you, Lord, that one day you will vanquish him fully and finally. And we will have a golden age. A time when the seasons of darkness will be behind us. And Lord, I pray that as we think on these things and we, we rest in the grace and the reality of Christ, you give us renewed hope renewed passion for prayer, renewed zeal for evangelism, and just a fact that we can rest in the finished work of our great conqueror, our great deliverer, our great champion, our great savior, Jesus Christ. He is the dragon slayer if ever there was one. And we thank you for that, Lord. There may be things that seem like, man, they have so many heads, we don't even know where the next bite's coming from, but we do know that if we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, if we go to you in prayer, if we just 
walk with you, Lord. We'll be fine. And you will lead us all the way home. So I just lift up those who are here, Lord, that you'd extend your hand where there's healing needed, where there's refreshment, where there's faith needed, where there's any kind of touch that can be beneficial to your body. May you do a mighty work. If you're not a Christian tonight or you've been running from the Lord, man, maybe you ended up here because you feel like you've been beat up and you've been losing. Now's the time to get right. Run to the refuge that is Jesus Christ. Something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Pray it if it's you. I believe that you came to this world to save us. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you bore my shame and my sorrow and my sin and took my punishment at that cross. I believe you rose from the dead, just like you said you would. And I want to trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Change me from the inside out. Save me. Make me your child and use me for your glory. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, maybe those who will listen to this later, may you bless them, may you seal them, may you strengthen them, may you lift their burdens, and may you be glorified in their life. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?